Beautiful Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR pile with golden new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing The Tragedy of Macbeth by William Shakespeare. Hey, Chelsea. Sarah, you're all cozy in your sweater. It's like chilly outside. It feels like the perfect time to talk about our October read. Yeah, I am really leaning into fall today. I'm just finally fully embracing it, not holding back. So yes, let's talk about some (laughs) witches, some murder, some get a little bit academic. This is going to be perfect. Don't forget the ghost. Oh, and the ghost. How could I forget? (laughs) I kind of did until I was reading Macbeth. And then I was like, oh, yeah, there's a ghost in here, too. Let's just get into it because I have a feeling we're going to have too much to say about this one. But just to kick us off, um, I'm curious. I actually, I don't know the answer to this. Sometimes I ask you this and I know the answer. (laughs) What is your past experience with Macbeth? I don't really remember that well, to be honest. It kind of feels like one of those plays I just always knew about. And I know I've read it before prior to this. So I don't think I read it in high school. Hamlet tends to be the go-to high Mm. school read, I think. I know there are are probably some that read Macbeth. Um, So I don't think that I read it in high school, but maybe I did. And then I'm pretty sure that we read it in Doug's Shakespeare class. So, yeah. And I can't remember if I've seen it on stage at all, but I know that I've watched films. Yeah, it's it's there. Like, it was in my brain. I kind of knew what was going on, but not any super memorable experience. What about you, Sarah? I remember many of my experiences with Macbeth. I did read this one in high school. I remember it very vividly because it was um, a school that I attended just for a single semester, my sophomore year, We had, between like two other moves. And I didn't know anybody in my English class. I had been in honors English in my previous school, and they wouldn't let me into honors English mid-semester at my new school, and I was very upset about that, but I ended up loving this English teacher, and she was so great at kind of giving me some like extra, not extra work, but just a little bit more to think about, even though I wasn't in honors English, which I really appreciated. We read Macbeth, and I really remember having to, like, act out different scenes, probably mostly because I was uncomfortable because I didn't know anyone at the high school. But I remember getting to do the out damn spot Lady Macbeth speech on our little stage, just, well, in the school's theater, but just for my class. And then I read it in college in my Shakespeare's Tragedies on Film class. And then I taught it for many years to our sophomore British literature students. And I also saw it at the Globe in London. Well, yeah, that would be memorable. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I will admit, though, we did not splurge for the seats. We got the groundling tickets. Oh. Do not recommend. Yeah. It is really hard 
on the body to stand for four hours. <laughs> Somebody fainted. Maybe it was the oh, curse gosh. of Macbeth, but maybe it was just <laughs> standing that long. And we left at intermission. We were like, we can't, we yeah. can't do this. Well, and this is Shakespeare's shortest play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so. so I re- if you go to the Globe, splurge for the seats <laughs> is my yeah. recommendation. But it was a really cool version where the witches were puppets and the like puppeteering was really, really cool and, and eerie. And yeah, those are my my Macbeth experiences. I mean, I love hearing about a great English teacher and it sounds like you had some fun with this play, but is there anything else about this play that you particularly like compared to some of your other Shakespeare experiences? No. (laughs) (laughs) I think I just have had good experiences with it. And I think, I, I think it's just, you know, well, you, you really know that the Shakespeare you become more familiar with, it just kind of creeps up on you as a favorite because it is really hard to get a Shakespeare mm-hmm. play on the first reading. Oh, I should say, I actually, I didn't see this version, but I, I can't make it through an episode talking about Macbeth without mentioning that my brother-in-law was a professional theater actor for many years, and he played Macbeth in a production in D.C. that was like a like a primal uh, caveman version of Macbeth where the entire cast was naked and they weren't allowed to groom themselves for many months beforehand. And they just were naked and wore mud and performed Macbeth and apparently was amazing. Very well reviewed. I I mean, of all of the Shakespeare plays that you can perform naked in mud, this one seems really appropriate. The Scottish play. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Let's um, but let's return to your question at the end because sometimes like thinking through classics with you, Chelsea helps me either like helps me get in touch with why the book has staying power. Like maybe I'll have a better answer to your question once we talk talk through it. Okay. I'm excited to talk about it. I really enjoy pretty much any Shakespeare play, especially any that I have seen on stage. I tend to like the comedies better than the tragedies. It's just my particular taste. I love the humor. I love the sort of like bouncy, fun nature of the comedies. The tragedies are so much darker. They're often political Um, Shakespeare writes a lot of histories, which we often separate from the tragedies. But in this case, this is like a history and tragedy combined because it is based on real history. So yeah, is there anything that you want to clarify about Shakespearean tragedy for our listeners before we get into Macbeth? I I think, you know, whenever or often when Shakespeare's tragedies get taught, they are taught alongside like Aristotle's definition of tragedy of, you know, a flawed hero. Um, something feels very tragic when you can see another path um, and a more positive outcome, but things don't go that way. And of course, that feeling of catharsis, which is is that, you know, living through the characters as they make these tragic decisions and, and feeling that with them and 
then, you know, I would say Aristotle would say like taking those lessons kind of with you into, into life. I think this one is maybe, I mean, I, I haven't read all of Shakespeare's tragedies by any means, but, um, you know, I think Macbeth is a pretty complicated character. Um, and I'm not sure to me, he really fits the like tragic hero archetype of like, you know, well-meaning, but with like a fatal flaw. Um, so this one feels a little bit different to me in that, in that way. But those are just some of the things I was thinking about as we were prepping for today. Um, so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how this fits into the tragedy. I was also, I was reading, I think some of the links that you put in our, our doc, Chelsea, and, um, I knew that this was based on a true story. I knew that, Banquo is a real person and King James traces his lineage back to Banquo. And so there's a lot of flattery of King James the first in this play. I did not know that Macbeth was apparently like a pretty good king. Like, <laughs> but uh, Shakespeare couldn't make that his play because, well, first of all, that wouldn't be a very good play, but also James wouldn't have liked it. Yeah, there's a lot of politics behind the politics in this play, which is fascinating. I also think, so I love your point about Macbeth maybe not necessarily being the most traditional tragic hero. I also just think the setting here lends itself to a much more complicated play. It's not as straightforward. The ending isn't very straightforward either. So usually like in a comedy a Shakespearean comedy, the end is very neatly tied up in a bow. There's a marriage. These people are happy. These people are not. It's, it's very like clear cut. In a tragedy, it's like, oh, something horrible happens and someone gets their comeuppance by the end. That kind of happens here, but also we're left with this feeling of like, is everything actually resolved for the other characters of the play? Couldn't this just very easily happen again? Couldn't there just be more chaos? The play opens in the aftermath of battle because King Duncan, who is king at the beginning of the play, is already fighting for his throne. So we're opening already with war, with violence, with chaos, with someone trying to um come after a kingdom and there's already battle there's already violence this play is just existing in that world the things that happen kind of make sense for the setting so i think we probably should just start with a really quick summary of act one sarah and then get into talking about some of these characters who are introduced all right. Great idea. Yeah. And we're going to kind of go act by act rather than try to summarize the whole twisty, complicated thing at the beginning. So as you mentioned, it takes place, it starts at, in the aftermath of battle. Macbeth and Banquo, they're two successful generals. They come across three witches and these witches share a prophecy. According to our three witches, Macbeth is to be promoted to the Thane of Cawdor, which is basically a major promotion for Macbeth. Um, and then he'll be king of Scotland, which is a surprise, right? He's not in line to be king of Scotland. Banquo, though, is to beget kings, meaning he's not going to be king, but his descendants will be. 
Banquo is curious about the prophecy, but ultimately shrugs it off. Whereas Macbeth, who is named Thane of Cawdor shortly after running into the witches, can't stop thinking about it. He shares the news with his wife and Lady Macbeth reveals herself to be even more ambitious than her husband and vows to help him claim that title of king. We're taking this act by act, but it's going to be difficult not to zoom out sometimes at the whole play in its entirety. As you were sharing this summary for act one, I just, I, uh, Macbeth and Banquo aren't foils for each other. Like they're not necessarily opposites in the sense that a lot of characters in Shakespeare's plays are foils to like showcase different characteristics of the other one. But Banquo takes such a different approach to this prophecy than Macbeth. And I think it's really interesting to think about, well, if Macbeth took the same approach as Banquo of like, okay, well, maybe that'll happen. We'll see. I'm really curious to hear more about this. I would ask the witches more questions if I could, but I can't. So we're going to move on with life. If Macbeth had done that, would he still have ended up king? Or is it that the witches planted this in his head and he took over from there? There's this really great question that the play puts right in front of our faces right away of, are we going to believe in this prophecy as fate? Or is it a little bit of trickery? Or is it just something that then Macbeth takes and takes his fate into his own hands. And I think that that question is really interesting. It's so interesting. I mean, I think that that has become a really common fantasy trope. Like you can look at things like Harry Potter and Game of Thrones, and they have those elements of what is prophecy and does like trying to avoid the outcome you hear about in a prophecy actually lead you to fulfill it. Um, And some of that happens later on in in Macbeth as well. I, I think that, you know, I think that because to, to me and my reading of Shakespeare's canon, he's so interested in the, the human and the interior lives of, of people that it is more about ambition and you know, hearing that. And then, yes, it's Macbeth taking over from there that ultimately leads to this. I I don't think there's a alternate version of this story where Macbeth is like, hmm, well, let's see how that plays out and still becomes <laughs> king. But I don't know. Do you have a similar or different reading to it? I don't. I think that Some of the beauty of that open-endedness is that when you stage one of Shakespeare's plays, you get to kind of decide and you get to prompt the actors to play it a certain way or you get to stage it in a certain way that might suggest a different route to the audience. And I think that you could see four different versions of the play, each with a different approach to the character of Macbeth and his ambition or reluctance and feel a little bit differently about it. I was reading a really great review of the new Cohen version of Macbeth. This is the one that stars Denzel Washington and about how Macbeth might not necessarily be a very sympathetic character. Like as you're, especially I think if you're just reading the play, 
you definitely like get in his mind, but it's not a fun place to be. You're not like rooting for him because you know that what he's doing is wrong from the get-go and there's all of this moralizing back and forth about it. However, when you put Denzel Washington, beloved actor, like iconic figure in the role, you can't help but be a little bit more sympathetic to Macbeth and be a little bit more on his side because it's Denzel. And I definitely, I watched maybe the first half of the film. I definitely felt that because I love Denzel and I love when he does Shakespeare. So I found myself so much more drawn to Macbeth and so much more willing to like accept what he's doing in the play because of that. So I I cannot think of this without thinking as a theater person and just say it depends on the staging. (laughs) That's a really roundabout way of saying I don't have an opinion on it. It depends on how it's staged and presented to me. I no, I I'm really glad that you're bringing up this idea right at the top of this episode, because I think that that is exactly right. And even thinking about the, the casting or how you stage like the witches, right? You can choose to make them seem just like regular women, right? Or you can do like the globe version where they were puppets and it was clear that, yes, that there was something actually supernatural happening here. You can make that choice as as a director. And I think, you know, that determines a lot of how you see the play and what's going and and even a lot of how you read Macbeth's character. So I'm really glad that you um, brought that up. So I, I don't want to spend too much more time in Act One because it's really just exposition. It just sets up the main action of the play. But is there anything else that you want to say about those witches, Sarah? Because they appear and they're the first thing that we actually see on stage. And then they kind of go away and they come back for the prophecy. So do you have, I mean, you saw them as the puppets on stage. Do you have a preference for how the witches are shown or played? I don't know if I have a preference. I I think it can be done really well either way. Um, In our Shakespeare adaptations episode, I talked about the book, The Third Witch, which really casts the witches as these three women who have a plot and they're, they're carrying it out. They have, they, they know exactly what they're doing. And I love that reading. Um, I also think the supernatural stuff is really fun and intriguing and maybe even, allows for a different sort of exploration of the question of fate versus choice. And so I I enjoy that as well. I I will say I right before we were we started recording, I saw like I didn't click on the article, but I saw a brief headline about somebody um saying that you shouldn't let your children watch Hocus Pocus because you don't know if what the witches are saying in the movie is real spells and real witchcraft and what kind of spells they might be casting on your children. And I just felt like I had to bring that up because that was a worry of Shakespeare's audiences and seeing Macbeth that these might be real spells. And even though it was just actors performing, they could be unknowingly doing witchcraft and, you know, cursing or whatever the audience. So how far we've come. (laughs) (laughs) I 
I was, we do not have to include this, but I was just thinking that it's really wild that we're talking about a play about treason and ambition and the January 6th committee is meeting, like, as we're recording this. Yeah. Oh, I mean, right. This is why Shakespeare is still relevant. (laughs) (laughs) I Um, also, I mean, I think it's kind of cool that um, some of the, like, witches jargon, like, don't they say, like, double double toil and trouble mm-hmm. and like that, that have just become what we which speak <laughs> which speak exactly yeah so it's so cool like that once again like Shakespeare this is this is why we read them <laughs> okay so after learning about this I think the interesting thing is Macbeth is named Thane of Cawdor and so he's already like oh part of the prophecy came true so he goes back home And he's, you know, eager to get back home to his wife, Lady Macbeth. And King Duncan follows him to be a guest in his home. And when everyone goes to sleep, Lady Macbeth helps Macbeth murder the king by dagger. Um, She doesn't, like, go in there with him, but she, like, sets up a bunch of things around and she is part of plotting the murder with him. The next morning, when the king is discovered dead, his sons, Malcolm and Donald Bain, flee just in case they're up next, but they get blamed for the murder. Yeah, so act two is the murder. And I just want to say historically, so like at this time that the true like history of Macbeth would have taken place, hospitality was incredibly important. And so the fact that the king is murdered in their home is like even a step further into treason, even a step further into, I can't believe they did that because hospitality and welcoming someone into your home and entertaining them and having the king would have been such an honor. Like it is a big deal that he's murdered in their home when he is a guest. Like that is a step above just treason. Red wedding level of yes. big deal. I'm just going to keep making Game of Thrones references. I was really, I was so tempted to make that a pairing because oh. I really, I do think it's a great pairing for Macbeth, but we did pair it with Lord of the Rings. And anyway, we'll talk about Game of Thrones later. But yeah, you can't help but think about about Game of Thrones. It's a really good example of these people vying for power. And yeah, Red Wedding, so unexpected because... It's this place of hospitality. You're celebrating. You're being a guest. You're being welcomed into someone's home. And all of a sudden, blood. Well, another thing that I think is very important in this act is, of course, we meet Lady Macbeth. I think it's really significant that Macbeth immediately writes a letter to her to tell her what has happened with these witches. Like, he... They're partners. They really are like true partners. I'm not saying they're like couple goals. I'm just saying (laughs) that it's rare to see that kind of marriage depicted in in plays and literature of this time. And so I think that that's that's maybe Shakespeare is saying, don't let your wife have that level of authority in your relationship but um but it's certainly there and they seem to really care about 
each other. So I, I find that interesting. What do you think about them as a couple or or Lady M as um as a character? Herself? Yeah, they're in love, and like mm-hmm. their marriage is hot. Yeah. They're they're very like sexual on the page, mm-hmm. um, and it seems like Lady Macbeth kind of uses that to her advantage a little bit when she's trying to encourage Macbeth to do this. It is there is this really interesting back and forth, and I think there's such a question of who is morally responsible. Would Macbeth have actually gone through with the murder if Lady M was not behind him, whispering in his ear, encouraging him? forcing him in some ways she kind of like smacks him and says be a man right yep um would he still have gone through with it without her there's like this really deeply rooted adam and eve question here with the two of them and i think that it's fascinating so and i also think it's interesting so they are very much partners they seem to take on equal responsibility for the murder, even though he is the one who holds the dagger, who actually does the killing. Lady Macbeth and Macbeth have equal amounts of guilt and really struggle after the fact. I don't know if they have equal ambitions. I think Lady Macbeth might be a little bit more ambitious than her husband. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that she might have more of a far-sighted look at what you have to do in order to socially climb. He's a soldier, right? Like he is used to taking action. He's not a politician. She's a lady. She is in that world of more gossip and politics. And so she's, I think, maybe got a more of a scheming mind about her um, where like she's the brains, he's the brawn. There's so Sarah, I am curious though to hear there's a lot of masculine versus feminine versus ge- very gender neutral imagery and just dialogue between the two of them and in their soliloquies and their speeches. Uh, for example, Lady Macbeth is talking about unsex me here. She's telling Macbeth to be a man and kill. And I. Uh, do you make anything of these gender dynamics between them? Is is there anything larger to say? The witches are portrayed as sort of sexless, genderless. Um, I don't know. I, it's really watching the language there is really interesting. Yeah, I think that's really important. There's also, additionally, there's kind of within the question of femininity, lots of questions of motherhood. Lady Macbeth is not a mother, definitely a way to read this is that there have been children that they've lost, whether that's through miscarriage or early death and infancy. But um, I think that piece is important too, that there's something that maybe Shakespeare's kind of saying there about Lady Macbeth that I think we in today's world would find problematic. Um, But I do, I mean, I don't think, so we're not like, we're in Renaissance England. So we are in a world where femininity was considered dangerous, that women were more of these temptresses that could lead men astray, that that their sexuality had to be 
not necessarily contained because that's when we get into like Victorian England and that kind of uh, angel of the house trope. Um, But so I guess I think that is what's important here is that women were considered to be surely like fragile in like a physical sense compared to men. And that's probably where Elizabeth where Elizabeth, where, um, <laughs> where Lady Macbeth is kind of saying, unsex me here and take away that fragility. But it's not like women were considered these pure, helpless creatures either. Um, so I, I, I'm not totally sure what the play is saying about gender, but I think that you're right to like note note those things and note that the physicality of each sex is important to what they are perceived to be capable of. I also, like, I don't think we can read this separate from what's going on historically at the time that Shakespeare's writing this. Mm-hmm. He's finally writing have this. a king. Right. <laughs> He's writing this as part of the king's men. There is a king in power after a reign of Queen Elizabeth, who we can argue was pretty successful as a monarch, um, but was constantly proving herself as a woman in power. And so, yeah, there's, there's just sort of that, like, that power dynamic, I think, of femininity and masculinity. And there's so much violence in here. I don't think that that masculinity can be separated from violence in the context of Macbeth either. All right. So Macbeth gets to be king. The next part of the prophecy comes true. Uh, so he has this power, but he also is ridden with guilt and insecurity and lots of questions about his worthiness of the role and how he came by the role. He remembers, he's like, hmm, these prophecies are coming true. And he remembers that the witches said that Banquo's children would be kings. Banquo's like his bestie, but he and Lady Macbeth decide that this is not okay. They can't let Banquo's children live, and so he sends assassins after Banquo and his son. Fleance, fly, Fleance, fly, fly. <laughs> Maybe the son escapes, but Banquo does die. And his ghost haunts Macbeth at a banquet that night. Okay. And this is, I have a theater question for you, Chelsea. Yeah. If you were directing Macbeth, would you have the actor who plays Banquo show up at the haunting Mm. or not? That's such a good question. It is a totally different effect. Because I think when you don't have Banquo there – you are impressed by the madness of Macbeth and you feel that you are like one of those people at the banquet table who are seeing Macbeth go crazy, who are seeing him talk to nothing because no one else sees Banquo's ghost. So it totally aligns you with a different person on stage. If you have Banquo on stage you're aligning the audience with Macbeth because then they're seeing what he sees. Oh, I don't know what I would do. It would be so dependent on, I think, um, like the framing of other things in the play. But I also think like if you're the 
uh, actor who's playing Banquo, like you want to go be the ghost. (laughs) (laughs) You want to be able to put all the makeup on and like go out on stage and go haunt people, right? (laughs) Totally. And there are are certainly film versions that I've seen, I think, where um, they do both because Mm -hmm. you can do that in a film yeah, right, where you can pan the camera kind of behind Macbeth and you see the, the ghost and then pan it away and there's no nothing there. So, you know, film directors get to, can have it both ways if they want. But I, I always think that was one of my favorite questions to ask students um, when we were reading Macbeth and talk about the different effects, because I think, I think I would not have Banquo there and I would have to calm my my actor who was playing Banquo <laughs> however I could but I just think that the like the guilt component maybe comes out a little bit more strongly even without Banquo there like you said the madness um and I think that is of course connected to the to his guilt this is such a unique play in that, well, I don't, I guess it's not that unique. Every, pretty much every actor in one of Shakespeare's tragedies has a soliloquy talking about their inner thoughts. But <laughs> this is a particularly interesting contrast because, so I was I was reading, um, one scholar described it as a play with outer action and inner being. Mm. There's this, contrast between there's there's a lot of action in this play and it's violent and it's bloody and it's treacherous and dangerous but then there's so much that's just internal about this play it's such a psychological play because for the whole second half of the play we have these main characters grappling with the effects of what they've done Mm -hmm. major guilt questions of ambition questions of morality all of this like ethical reasoning And so, yeah, I guess it would depend on if you're really heightening the supernatural elements with the witches. Mm. I think you would probably use the supernatural elements of the ghost and make everything really supernatural and real to, Mm -hmm. like, heighten those elements. But if you are going to focus more on the internal questions of the play and more of a... uh, a light hand with the witches. I think it would make a lot of sense to not have Banquo there. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I love that reading of the themes of Macbeth. I think, yeah, the question of like, are are we what we do is an interesting one for this play. And always one thing that I would ask my students is, you know, Raise your hand if you've ever cheated on any assignment. And pretty much all of them would. Um, it's like, be really small, but just any anything. And then I would say, you know, raise your hand if you consider yourself a cheater. And no one would. And so mm. we would talk about that kind of differentiation between are you what you do? If you do something once, does that become who you are? Is it a sliding scale based on the level of atrocity and mm-hmm. or like does motivation matter, right? I'll, and I think all of those questions are really at work in this play. 
And I, I think the way that the that you kind of summarized that article phrased it just really beautifully with like so much plot, but simultaneously so much interiority, which is makes it so great. Okay, let's get to act four. This is, a, I think this is a really fun part of the play because the witches come back. So Macbeth goes back to them because he wants more details on the prophecy. He is... <laughs> He's feeling really insecure about his position. I think he's realizing how precarious the power that he has grabbed truly is. And he just doesn't feel safe and secure in his power. He doesn't feel like he's made it as king. So the witches say he'll be safe until Burnham Wood marches against him and that he cannot be killed by anyone born of woman. So he figures, okay, well, the woods are not going to march against me. That's ridiculous. And anyone born of woman is everyone. So I'm all good. I'm going to live forever and I'm just going to be king. (laughs) Um, So they share more details with him. And then he pretty much just goes on a killing spree, though, because as much as he feels like a little bit better after the witches talk to him, he is still just not in a good place mentally and... His reign is violent. Macduff, also a a soldier here, he travels to Malcolm and kind of hopes to encourage a civil war and encourages Malcolm to go claim the the throne. So I think Macduff is kind of an interesting character because we can hate on Macbeth all we want, right? But Macduff is kind of doing the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) that Macbeth did. He's plotting to kill a king and put someone else on the throne. So um, he presents an interesting quandary here of like, well, is it just because we get to see Macbeth's guilt and his ambition and like the cost of that, that we're thinking that this is wrong? Because this kind of happened in Scotland all the time. Yeah, <laughs> Macduff, I mean, Macduff is going to go do the same. I guess the difference is Macduff isn't trying to install himself as king, right? He's trying to put the right person on the throne, which like, you know, again, this is largely to appease King James, who has is very worried about, rightfully so, about people trying to assassinate him. But, you know, the... The legitimate heir is just, it's such a, it's so almost weird to think about from our perspective because it's like, oh, Malcolm's king just because of who he's born to. Like maybe Macbeth would actually be a better king because he's ambitious and like knows, you know, is more decisive, whatever. It's interesting to think, yes, oh, Malcolm, he really deserves it just because of who he was was born. But I I guess that's why like Macbeth or Macduff can get gets a little more of a pass. But that's not to say he's not ambitious like being the person who helps reinstall a king, you're going to have a lot of power, right? It mm-hmm. might not be as visible, but it certainly certainly exists. This is again with Game of Thrones. Yeah, I know. It's like, I know. okay, is the king the powerful <laughs> one or is it the cabinet members around him who are encouraging one thing or the other, right? And Malcolm is young. He's like more moldable and impressionable. So yeah, it's it's tricky. 
It's tricky. All right. This is where kind of Macbeth kind of really tries to, in some ways, fight his fate, right? He, the, the killing of Banquo again as well. Like it, it seems, it seems pretty silly of Macbeth to be like, oh, these parts of the prophecies have, has come true, but I can prevent other parts of it. Like you can't have it both ways, Macbeth. Um, but he's feeling like pretty decent and of course things don't work out because it's the tragedy of Macbeth. So Malcolm's army, Malcolm is convinced by Macduff. Uh, they march on Macbeth's home. Hi, <laughs> Chelsea. I have to say, I find these like prophecy plot twists so silly. Like I, <laughs> it just feels like a twelve-year-old wrote this to me. <laughs> okay, so they, the army, they cut down branches from Burnham Wood and they hide themselves behind them and they sneak up on his castle. And they're like, "You're is you could show that." What's that? <laughs> you could show that on stage somehow, though. Yes, this is true. So it sounds simple and silly, but it yeah. could be staged. <laughs> yeah. It, yes. The way it's staged really would matter because it just, it seems like a cartoon. Yeah. And they're like, are those woods getting closer? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> the woods are getting closer. Lady Macbeth, meanwhile, has gone completely mad. She's sleepwalking. She's obsessed with cleaning off her hands this is where we get the out damn spot scene which is um in contrast with what she said earlier right a little water will wash us of this deed and now no no water in all of the oceans will clean her her little hand when she says this little hand (laughs) (laughs) um she is so racked with with guilt that she commit suicide off stage. We learn of that uh, when Macbeth does. Um, mid-battle, again, so many Game of Thrones <laughs> comps. Yep. Um, Macduff challenges Macbeth to one-on-one combat. Macbeth is like, sure. And they're battling and Macbeth is like, no man of woman born <laughs> can kill me. And Macduff is like, Macduff from his mother's womb was untimely ripped. And that's our plot twist. Macbeth was, or Macduff was born by C-section. I just want to say as someone who tried pushing a baby out for four hours and then had to have an emergency C-section, I take offense at this, but I, it's fine. Like, whatever. All it's birth because, is natural. Right. <laughs> Shakespeare. Um, but it's because so of woman born like if she would have had a vaginal birth she was the one like pushing the baby into the world um or midwives would have Mm -hmm. assisted you would have needed a male surgeon Mm -hmm. to perform the c-section so a midwife a woman wouldn't have taken the baby out of the womb if you would have had a midwife perform the c-section still would have been woman born so Mm -hmm. there's like a it's a very like small little twist, but like it's a clever plot twist, I guess. Clever it play is on words. Wor- clever play on words. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be a fun reveal if yeah. you're an audience member watching the original production, right? Yeah, it was a tough one to sell to teenagers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, what? <laughs> um. So you know, 
the prophecy comes true. No man born of woman could have brought down Macbeth, but Macduff, not of woman born, he slays Macbeth, puts his head on a pike, and then the play ends with us knowing that Malcolm is going to be Scotland's next king. Um, but we don't see all of that, don't see that happen. It just kind of ends like on the battlefield mm-hmm. still. And we also know, right, that Banquo, according to the prophecy, his children, mm-hmm. his descendants, are going to ultimately be king. So how long does Malcolm's lineage last? We don't know. So not a particularly tidy ending, um, but a, surely a dramatic one. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's kind of fun to say, like, okay, well, what do we think happens after this? It's not, it is really a much messier ending than most of Shakespeare's plays. Usually we kind of know where things are left off, but here it it feels to me like we're just anticipating more violence. Mm-hmm. The play opens with violence, it deals in violence, I think it ends in violence, and we're just going to keep continuing with violence. Mm-hmm. Because all these men are in charge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. But as you said, like in this world of violence, there is so much interiority and so much reflection on like what it means to be a person in this world. And I, I think that's part of what makes this play special or like at least a good, <laughs> good one to teach because there are really fun scenes to act out. Um, there's a lot that happens, but there are great, uh, beautiful soliloquies to, to analyze and to, to think about. Um, we've talked about this play for a long time already and we have to get to pairings, but I, I do think that the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech is so lovely and so important in terms of literature, like just in our our Patreon episode recently about the the history of Shakespeare on stage. We talked about how this line is in Hamilton. Of course, Gabrielle Zevin's book that just came out is titled Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, and Macbeth plays an important role. Uh, Faulkner's masterpiece, The Sound and the Fury, gets its name from this tiny passage. It's just this, it's kind of amazing how how many allusions there are to this single Shakespeare passage. Yeah, and it's not the longest soliloquy by any means like it's relatively short like you said and it's really it's I think that it's so famous because it's it's not really pertaining to the play no at all (laughs) like it's you can separate it out from Macbeth you could insert it into anything um do you think Shakespeare just wrote this and was like hmm I'll stick it in this one (laughs) It could have been because it's also sort of reflecting on the actor Mm -hmm. and uh, what role we have performing on stage and how short the time is. And is this really, is my art actually impacting people or is this all for nothing? Well, Mm -hmm. if only he could see. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Here we are talking about it on a podcast. Yes. Um, I, so I think that's part of it's, enduring themes. But yeah, Macbeth is is saying this not as the ambitious or guilt-ridden king, 
But as someone who is losing everything and just feels like it was all for nothing, Mm -hmm. this is after he learns of Lady Macbeth's death. Mm -hmm. This is, I mean, this is just where he's, he's facing down an army and he's like, why did I do this? What is the point of life? And what is the point of anything if I don't have my wife with me anymore? So it is, it does touch on that. timeless human question of what are we doing here? What's it all for? Yeah. And I, I, without, you know, going into this, I, I find it almost, I I found the Gabrielle Zevin book strangely titled for that reason. Um, I like the way she uses it in her book about how video games are the promise of a tomorrow and a tomorrow and a tomorrow, because you can keep re-entering these worlds and with countless lives. But overall, I didn't find the book super connected to this uh, to this speech, unlike something like The Sound and the Fury, where it's like, wow, that is like so that con- the connection just adds so much, bet- you know, just so many more layers once you know that connection. I, I, I love I love that. And it's so bleak. Oh, yeah. It's so bleak. This is such a bleak speech. Mm -hmm. So, Sarah. Yes. With this speech in mind, with your experiences with Macbeth on the stage and teaching in mind, what are some of your biggest takeaways from the play? Why do you think it's so enduring? And do you find any connections to it? Anything new since we dissected it? Act by act. Well, I mean, after our conversation and talking so much about kind of the staging and the the theatrical components of it, I do think probably a large part of why it's so enduring is there are so many choices to be made in any production. And the smallest of choices, you know, whether or not you show in the film version, like the dagger that Macbeth sees or not. Um, whether you decide to show Lady Macbeth's death or not, like just change the perception of the story and the, the themes so much. So it always has something new to say. I mean, we when we first recorded our, like, what are the classics episode way back two and a half years ago, that's one thing we talked about as a classic is something that never stops saying what it has to say. And I think that this play very much can always have something new to say. But as you said when we talked about the tomorrow speech, it also has these quote unquote universal themes. What what are we doing here? What is the meaning of life? Do I have any control over my own fate? Do people see the world the way I see it? Um, Those are timeless questions. And so I think that that's probably why this play endures and and it makes me appreciate it a lot as a reader. I love that. I don't know that I have anything to add. I think that the ethical questions in this play about power and responsibility are questions that we're going to be asking for centuries to come. All right. Well, given all of that, I'm very eager to hear what you paired with this. So Chelsea, what is your first pairing. 
I don't want to talk about this one too much because we shared it in our Shakespeare TBR toppler. Highly recommend listening to that episode. We shared some really fun titles. But All's Well by Mona Awad takes Macbeth and Shakespeare and does some really fun, weird things with it. So it is about this theater professor who wants to stage the titular play All's Well That Ends Well because she has history with it. But her students really want to do Macbeth. And she is, meanwhile, grappling with really severe, intense chronic pain. And so I think that the interiority of this book and of her experiencing that pain and her ambition to put on this play and how much it means to her really relates to the play in general. And there are just some really fun nods to Macbeth. There are three men in suits who approach her at a bar and sort of tell her, um, like, hey, we can like grant you a wish kind of thing. And she ends up on this somewhat supernatural journey where her pain is gone and she's that much more powerful. So lots of tie-ins to Macbeth. It's super weird. And I just think it's a great fall read and I wish more people would pick it up. So All's Well by Mona Awad, also one that you loved, Sarah. I loved it so much. It's so weird and so good. (laughs) What do you have on your list? Okay, so I have a straight retelling that I totally forgot about for our adaptations episode, a kind of retelling, and then something totally different. So I'm going to go in that order. So my straight retelling um, is Serena by Ron Rash. Um, This came out in 2008, um, and I read it with my book club. It is a a retelling of Macbeth. Um, Serena is our Lady Macbeth character. And it takes place in late 1920s North Carolina. So George Pemberton has been working at this timber company in North Carolina for a long time, but he meets and marries the very ambitious and beautiful and manipulative Serena in Boston and then brings her back to North Carolina. She wants them to be in charge of this empire, this timber empire, and she makes makes that happen in, in the vein of Macbeth. The one interesting thing that Ron Rash does, he really kind of plays out this idea of Lady Macbeth's potential desire to be a mother and mm. the fact that that has not happened. And in his book, he creates this kind of subplot where George has a child with another woman before he meets and marries Serena. Not a previous wife. It's it's out of, out of wedlock. Um, and this child is very much exists in Serena and George's orbit when she comes back to the timber mine. Mine? Is a timber mine? Timber land. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The woods, you know, where the trees are. <laughs> so I enjoyed this book. I do think that it has some of the symptoms of like book about a flawed woman written by a man. And so I would take some things with a grain of salt for sure in reading this book. 
But I think it's a it's a great Macbeth retelling. And really the like the ambition, the manipulation, the like the the play of what is femininity, what is masculinity, it's all very dramatic. And so I think especially when you read it with that in mind, that Macbeth adaptation in mind, the overblownness of some of the stereotypes, gender stereotypes feels like it very intentional. So yeah, I, I think this is a good one. I there is a movie starring Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper, and I have heard it is terrible. I have not seen it. That's just another note. If you want to watch an adaptation of an adaptation, that's not supposed to be very good. <laughs> I so Sarah, whenever we talk about a play, we often talk about the actual staging of it in our conversation naturally. But I feel like we did that especially today. Mm-hmm. And so my next pairing sort of goes with with that theme. If we were villains by ML Rio is a really great campus murder mystery. And at the very beginning of the book, we know that a murder has been committed. We know who's been blamed for it, but we don't know exactly what actually happened. So I think that this pairs really well with Macbeth, mostly for all of the Macbeth references and the theater references and Shakespeare references, because this group of characters, they are studying Shakespeare. They are studying at this arts college to be Shakespearean actors. There is ambition. There is definitely a lot of questioning about ethics and morality as these characters grapple with another um, friend's death. And so, yeah, I just think like that murdery, uh, definitely October vibes is so perfect with this book. So if we were villains by ML Rio, I as I was reading Macbeth, I kept thinking there are probably so many domestic thrillers that would pair really well with it. Cause I think there are a lot of domestic thrillers where you've got kind of like a husband and wife who are uh schemers in some way, or like there's gotta be one. Yeah. Or many. But I just haven't been reading them very much in the last couple of years. So if anyone has pairings to add, let us know. But as far as a murder mystery, if we were villains by ML Rio is a great one for Macbeth. All right. My next one is my sort of retelling. It is The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith, which is a classic in and of its own right, written and published in 1955. This book is about Tom Ripley, and um, he's a sociopath. He's awkward, but he's he's charming and suave, and he had a um, not great childhood, and he really ingratiates himself with a wealthy friend, and then he decides that being this, this wealthy man, Dickie Greenleaf is his name, great name. It's not enough to be Dickie's friend. He wants to be Dickie. And he plots to make that happen. And I think that this is a book that, you know, any, if you love those kinds of like toxic friendship stories, if you love books about, um, oh, I don't know. I just feel like there are so many kind of like imposter sort of books right now and stories right now. This is the original. 
maybe not the total original, but one of them. It's one of the classics in that genre. And I think that this this book is so interesting because you really not necessarily empathize with Tom, but you understand him. And as we've talked about, whether or not you do empathize with or understand Macbeth depends a lot on how it's portrayed, how it's directed, how it's staged. Um, But clearly that was Patricia Highsmith's goal with this one was to turn a sociopath into somebody that you maybe didn't root for, but that you felt with. Um, So I will also add that there are a couple of Patricia Highsmith documentaries that have come out recently and her journals have recently been published and she was pretty terrible person with truly terrible beliefs. And so if this is an author you want to just pass on, I would completely understand that there's a lot to look into with her life as well. So if you choose to read The Talented Mr. Ripley, I think this is one of those authors to read and appreciate the art, but then make sure you do a little bit of reading on on her as well so you're getting, getting the full picture. But that is The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith. We offered the Game of Thrones series as almost a bonus pairing through this whole episode. I, I was just going to say, I think maybe even the House of the Dragon mm-hmm. that's currently on is like a particular, particularly <laughs> close yeah. pairing. We started watching, so I might need you to recommend some of the podcasts that you and Miles have been listening to. Do you have three and a half <laughs> spare hours a week? Because that's literally how long they are. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I do like the show, though. Yeah. Yeah. Me, too. But I feel like it requires extracurricular work on mm-hmm. my part. I just happen to have a baby who I have to lie down with at nap time. So <laughs> I'm like, all right, Joanna Robinson and Mallory Rubin. <laughs> Tell me how to understand House of Dragons. <laughs> oh, I love it. So that's like a bonus pairing. But I would like to actually pair a different fantasy series. This is one that I have not read, but it is on my husband's shelves. It is The Rage of Dragons by Evan Winter. The series is actually called The Burning. And I see that two of the books are out. There's a third one on the way, and then there's a fourth one that is untitled. So this is an epic fantasy series. So this is about the Omehi people, and they have been at war for hundreds of years. Their society is starkly like a caste society. Some are born gifted, one in every 2,000 women can call call down dragons. And um, one in every hundred men can transform into like a super soldier, basically. Everyone else is just a soldier, like run-of-the-mill soldier. So Tao is the main character. He knows he doesn't have a gift, but um, he just kind of is like, okay, I'm going to get myself injured in this war. I'm going to get out of the endless battles. I'm going to find myself a family, settle down, have some kids, have a great life. However, um, some people around him who he's really close to are murdered and he decides I'm going to get revenge. So he decides he's going to become 
the best swordsman ever. He doesn't have the gift of becoming a super soldier, but he is going to train himself to be able to fight them uh, and kill these people. So the reason that this goes with Macbeth really well is that this main character is rising in the ranks and almost starts to forget his purpose to begin with. And so it is very much about how ambition changes you. Um, And I also just think like this is a series that's often recommended alongside the Game of Thrones series as one that's like human characters that you can get behind and you can get to know in a fantasy world. And that's how Macbeth really feels too. Um, There are some supernatural, fantastical elements to Macbeth. But you're dealing with these deeply human characters who are grappling with major issues of ethics, morality, ambition. So in the second book, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that he is like risen um, to a place of like ruling. And I just think like as the series continues, it'll probably pair with Macbeth even better. That is The Rage of Dragons by Evan Winter. Uh, My last one is a little bit different, um, but I wanted to pair with Macbeth The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. The first thing you should know about this book is it has a gorgeous cover, and you probably saw it all over Instagram about five years ago when it first came out. Um, This book, it starts in 1969 in New York City, and we have four siblings, the gold children. They know that they shouldn't, but they go to see this mystical woman and to to hear their fortunes told. But their fortunes really just turn out to be, maybe not just, but they at least include the date that each of them will die. And then the book is divided into four sections and we follow each of their lives. It doesn't alternate. So we follow one sibling. We might hear about the other sibling in siblings in that section, but then we finish their, their journey and move to the next one. This book is sad. I mean, I feel like in the premise, you can just tell that it's going to be sad. I thought that this was a really beautiful family story. And I I like it as a pairing with Macbeth because it's also wrestling with that question of how much of our lives is fated and how much is our own free will and choice. And does having knowing your fate, quote unquote, um, mean that you, is that what makes it come true, right? And can you avoid it or does trying to avoid it only make it come on faster? I, I love those questions. This is not a fantasy novel in any way or even really magical realism in any way other than that you just have to buy in that this that these children learned the when they are how long they're going to live and i know a lot of people didn't like it for that 
reason, um, didn't lean into that as much. But I found this to be just like a really human way of exploring those questions, which I, as a reader who tends to like that real realistic fiction, appreciated. So I will also say that because of the structure of this novel, where it's not alternating, but it is divided by the four children, that I think is probably hard for some readers because you either get really invested in one of the stories and you don't want it to end or you don't like one of the stories and it doesn't come the next point of view doesn't come quickly the last section is the best one with the most beautiful reflections on what it means to be human so you if if you abandon it i'm going to encourage you to pick it back up because the last section is stunning so that is the immortalists by chloe benjamin I love your pairings, Sarah. This I love is yours. really fun to think about. This is fun. I I really liked talking about this one with you, Chelsea. I'm excited. I'm excited to put it out in the world. I hope you <laughs> all too. had fun listening. Let us know if you have any other pairings to share with Macbeth. And if you want to talk about Macbeth with us, join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash novel pairings. We have two levels for you to choose from. At one level, you get access to a bunch of bonus episodes on Fridays, and we've got lots of Shakespeare content there. So if you sign up now, you can go and listen to the backlog and get some Macbeth background and some fun Shakespeare information. And then at the higher level, we have book club discussions at the end of the month. We have live lectures and classes and seminars and really fun stuff. Um, and more at that level. So we so appreciate our community for helping us keep this show going. Truly, we could not do this without all of you. So thank you so much. If you want to join our smart, kind, curious group of readers, go to patreon.com slash novel pairings. For other ways to keep up with us, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com where we share extra links and goodies when episodes drop and follow us at Novel Pairings Pod on Instagram. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next month, we're reading The Chosen and the Beautiful, a great Gatsby retelling by Nivo. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.